0: now the federal drive with tom Temmin.
1: hello and thanks for joining us on this tuesday september 19th 2023 seven minutes past the hour i'm eric white filling in for tom our producer is peter masurlian our digital editors daisy thornton and Darius lauderdale coming up this hour of the federal drive the health and human services inspector general takes on a 400 billion dollar program plus what good is federal grant money if you can't get your hands on it Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the federal drive. But first, for months, concerns have been growing around a possible return of Schedule F. It's a now revoked executive order from the Trump administration that attempted to make some federal employees at will workers. Now, the Biden administration is taking a step to try to safeguard career feds against the potential effects of Schedule F in the case that it returns. Federal News Network's Drew Freeman joins us with more. Drew, how are you?
2: I'm good, Eric. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. So, why don't we just start out? First, you can give us an overview of what Schedule F is and why people are afraid of it.
2: This was a job classification that the Trump administration put into action through an executive order at the end of 2020. And the goal of that executive order was really to reclassify about 50,000 career federal employees, so those that are non political. And move them outside merit systems principles essentially it would have if it had been carried out to its its full effects that it would have made those positions at will and therefore the employees easier to fire this was focused largely on policy related positions the advocates of that executive order said that it would offer flexibility and accountability for these career federal employees But it quickly gained really major pushback from federal unions and other organizations. The Biden administration revoked the executive order within his first couple of days in office. So agencies largely weren't able to actually implement this Schedule F policy. However, it is something that has maintained attention both from agencies, from outside groups, as well as in Congress for several years now.
1: All right. And so now the Office of Personnel Management has issued a new proposed rule on this topic. What does that proposed rule say?
2: This would essentially do a couple of things for career federal employees. The goal is to really hedge against this possible return of Schedule F in a future presidential administration. If something like that happened, OPM right now is looking to adjust or uh, define some of the factors around Schedule F to make sure that you know these employees in, the, in OPM's perception would be better protected in the case that it does return. So for example, federal employees who might be considered for reclassification to Schedule F would still receive notice of that and they'd be given an opportunity to respond. They also, they wouldn't have their civil service protections removed unless that employee gave them up voluntarily. The proposed rule also clarifies the definition of the positions that the Trump administration was initially targeting with Schedule F. So those policy-determining, policy-making, and policy-advocating positions that were the ones that would have been uh, reclassified to Schedule F. OPM is now clarifying that those specifically refer to non-career political appointments, meaning that this is a protection or an effort at a protection for those who are career employees and non-political. So that's kind of their goal here is to just hedge against the possibility that Schedule F If it were to return, there are some now protections in place for federal career employees.
1: And why now? You know, we're three years into the Biden administration. We had heard some talk about this before uh, they had gotten into office. And what about this proposed rule or what about the timing makes them want to take this on now?
2: This is coming on the heels of several Republican presidential candidates for 2024 who have said that they are looking to remove career federal workers or have used rhetoric that would essentially is looking to remove some of these protections or try to hold federal employees more accountable. So this is, you know, there's a little bit of back and forth here, both within the administration and within Congress as well. So as these conversations continue to become a little bit more common, this is something that OPM is now trying to do to to protect against that.
1: We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman. So is this going to be enough? There are some federal workforce experts who are skeptical on whether or not this would fully prevent Schedule F's return. Why is that?
2: So the way that OPM is going about this is through the government's rulemaking process. And what that does is it essentially allows OPM as an agency to or other agencies can similarly you know, do things within their own Fields, but in this case, OPM is looking to propose a rule and then eventually make it final on the Federal Register. This is a process that agencies can use to kind of clarify the rules around existing laws that for the government. So, this is a way that they are trying to kind of bolster that. But the question here that some federal workforce experts have said is that, you know, a future administration, a future presidential administration could similarly issue its own set of. Rules or proposed rules to kind of backtrack or change gears essentially on what OPM is trying to do currently. Still, OPM Deputy Director Rob Shriver, the current Deputy Director for the agency, said that the rulemaking process does take several months and it is stronger than, for example, an executive order. So there's a little bit more strength here from the Biden administration and, and their efforts here, but. Some have said it's not necessarily going to be enough to fully prevent the rise of Schedule F in the future if it comes to that.
1: You mentioned the conversation that some presidential candidates are having. So where else is Schedule F getting attention while this topic is in that arena?
2: This is definitely something that's come up a lot more in Congress. More recently, a little bit earlier this year, we saw the introduction of a bill called the Saving the Civil Service Act. This is something from Senator Tim Kaine and Representative uh, Jerry Connolly in the House. And essentially, that bill would block future presidential administrations from enacting another uh, policy similar to Schedule F. This is something that Democrat lawmakers have introduced for several years in a row now, ever since the Trump administration had that executive order from 2020. But so far, it has not been enacted. And the bill this year, beyond being introduced in both chambers, hasn't had any action as of yet. Still, Kane and Connolly said that the proposed rule from OPM that came out just a few days ago, they said it serves as an important first step to protect merit-based principles and that they're going to continue pushing on their legislation, which would codify a similar uh, type of policy to prevent the possible return of Schedule F here.
1: And so wrapping up, what is coming next on the horizon? What should we be looking out for as this... uh, topic gets debated in Congress and everywhere else, apparently.
2: Right. It'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens in Congress, if there's any action or movement on this bill, the Saving the Civil Service Act, as well as now this proposed will from OPM, which is kind of clarifying some of these rules around career federal workers. They're opening that proposed rule to public comments for the next 60 days so people can kind of comment or give feedback on OPM's proposal here. And in the meantime, you have seen a lot of federal unions and other organizations kind of applauding the the goals of OPM and the Biden administration here. But as for actually, you know, getting something in law, well, that's kind of remains an open question. And and we'll just have to see where it goes from here.
1: All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. You can find her story at federalnewsnetwork.com, along with all of her other reporting as well. Still to come on Federal News Network, what good is federal grant money if you can't get your hands on it? It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. The Build Back Better Act, passed nearly two years ago, secured over $2 trillion for many aspects of the Biden administration's agenda, one of which includes infrastructure projects for state and local governments. But accessing grant money isn't as simple as sending a Venmo request. There's a lot that goes into showing exactly how and what the money will be used for, a process not many know how to navigate through. To help, members of Congress have introduced a bill tasking the Economic Development Administration to make itself available to aid local governments in pre-development procedures. One of those congressmen is Louisiana's Troy Carter, who I got the chance to speak with about the Economic Empowerment Through Pre-Development Act.
3: I started my career in local government, so I know the challenges that rural communities, small governments, uh, have with attracting resources for development, resources to even govern. So I've always been hypersensitive to try and create bridges, if you will, that will assist small communities, rural communities with the ability to access resources. I'm also keenly aware that oftentimes they're not within reach uh, for whatever reason, because of a lack of resources, lack of technical assistance, lack of opportunity to access the resources. We see this happen in in, in government far too often, that communities, rather it's business or individuals, academia or, or our government in this case, don't have the ability to access resources that we fought to get to them because they don't have the technical assistance, because something as simple as preparation for the opportunity is is a game changer, It's it's a game stopper. So having this opportunity of pre-development funding gives an opportunity to assist small communities to, to get ready to ramp up, to have the resources to access the bigger pie, if you will. Case in point, we passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. 50% of the, those funds are going to go direct appropriation to, to governors throughout the state. 50% is accessible by grant. But being accessible by grant means nothing if you don't have a grant writer. Being able to have funds sitting in a pot somewhere means nothing if you don't have a ladder to get to the pot. Uh, this provides that 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 ladder, if you will. That provi- this provides that bridge that will allow uh, smaller communities, rural communities to be able to access funds that will get them to the point to be able to get to the larger pot of resources. In, in, in many ways, it's an opportunity to level the playing field, uh, giving resources and opportunities for people that have otherwise missed opportunities because they just didn't have the the ladder to get to the top of the tree.
1: You touched on it a little bit, but can you uh, briefly describe to those of us who, you know, may not have as much public policy uh, experience such as yourself, what are pre-development activities and what are involved in them?
3: So, you know, pre-development can mean something as simple as putting together the application, explaining and, and defining the need. If you, if you envision, you know, in your own household, if we're talking to a homemaker, if you're talking to a a small business owner, having the the ability to to prepare for the ask. Having the ability to ask is one thing, knowing what to ask for and knowing how to ask for it is something different. Pre-development is showing you what to ask for and how to ask for it and giving you the tools to do it. I can dump a bunch of lumber in front of your house and say, go build a house. And that's great. But if you're not a builder, it's no good. This gives you some resources to help you figure out how to build it, not just giving you access to the, the raw material, but giving you access to the tools to actually build it. Pre-development gives you that opportunity to get ready for the big ask, the big opportunity. And, and, and I can't underscore, Eric, enough how real this is and in real time of how this impacts people who get intimidated by the paperwork. I mean, you look at a stack of papers and it's, it's repetitive and it asks for the same thing over and over again. And it's not always very simple. In fact, oftentimes it's complex and it asks questions that, you know, you need a, a, a PhD in science to be able to access. And you shouldn't need an MBA or a PhD to figure out how to apply for funds if your intention is to help me. If the intention is for government to make these resources available, we should make it plain. We should make it easy. We should make it accessible. That's what this does. That's what the Economic Development Administration, EDA, uh, the, the Economic Department, does. It gives us that opportunity through pre-development to make those first few steps in the process a lot easier. And that lays the predicate for what hopefully will be a much more successful outcome.
1: We're speaking with Congressman Troy Carter, who represents Louisiana's second congressional district, and that provides a a good segue into my next question. You talk about you need a Ph.D., and that that goes back to knowledge and training, right? Could the EDA and other federal agencies possibly be doing more to train local officials in just how to get that money out and going across the the dreaded two-word red tape?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. We could, we should, we will. Again, we're only as effective as the net outcome of what happens with our efforts. Listen, I was very fortunate and blessed to be appointed to the Regional Leadership Council. Twelve members of Congress had appointed by the leader of the Democratic Party to serve as the interface between the president of the United States and uh, his cabinet secretaries. Uh, to make sure that legislation and resources that we have navigated through the legislative process that have made it to the the president's desk for signature and are now law, that these resources find their ways into the communities. Having passed it and people not know about it is a waste of time. Having passed meaningful legislation and having people who need it most not be able to access it is a waste of time. Creating opportunity that people can't reach is not a true opportunity. So yeah, we can do better. And it's a part of our plan. It's a part of my push that we continue to, to distill facts, distill opportunities and make them uh, much more digestible, much easier to reach, and much, um, much, much, much more user friendly. And at the end of the day, we have a long ways to go to kill the bureaucracy, cut through the red tape, and demonstrate to people that we're not just a bunch of stuff, shirts, but we're just regular people who get elected, who come to Washington to really try and make it better for people. And the way you really want to make it better for them is stop playing word games and stop hiding facts in volumes of applications.
1: But it is, you know, it was these ideas were put there for a reason, obviously, to try and prevent waste, fraud and abuse. Is there a happy medium there where it's easy for local officials to access grants and cooperative agreements without having that huge risk of people using money for stuff that wasn't intended for?
3: Well, you know, that's a good point. And, and obviously we have to remain vigilant as it relates to risk uh, associated with, with scammers and people who want to game the system. Um, But, but helping people fill out an application and making it easier for them to apply does not disallow us from being Uh, Careful and doing our due diligence to make sure that we are rooting out those that would seek to uh, do harm or to uh, cheat the system. Listen, the reality is uh, one cheat is too many, but there are far more people, far, far, far. The greater majority of Americans are doing the right thing. We shouldn't penalize them because we got a couple of jerks out there that are trying to beat the system. We got to find those jerks when we get them and shut them down and bring them to justice. But I don't want to sit around with a bucket of water with a bunch of thirsty people uh, afraid to give them water because there might be one or two people in the crowd that really aren't thirsty. You know, that that's a bad analogy. That's a bad process. You know, I'd rather give a little bit of water to the two people that weren't thirsty than to to starve a 100 that really needed
1: it. Congressman Troy Carter represents Louisiana's 2nd District. You can find this interview along with more info about the bill at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, contractors prepare for shutdown or at least an austere October. But first, the Health and Human Services Inspector General takes on a $400 billion program. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temen on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Managed care, it's a substantial part of the gigantic Medicare program. The Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services figures half of Medicare enrollees gets health care from the Medicare Advantage program. In the words of the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General, the growth of managed care has transformed how the government pays for and covers health care. This is for 100 million people. That's why the IG has made managed care a top priority. To learn more about its new strategic plan, Federal Drive host Tom Timmons spoke to the senior advisor for managed care in the OIG's Office of Audit Offices, Carolyn Capesti. And so this is a $400 billion
0: expenditure. Maybe if you would just give us the brief explanation of how managed care is defined under Medicare versus the rest of the care that is paid
4: for. Oh, sure. So managed care, which most of us are familiar with, is an attempt to manage costs and provide better, more coordinated care through a health plan. In the Medicare population, Medicare Advantage has emerged as the predominant form for coverage for beneficiaries. And Medicare Advantage allows beneficiaries to choose a plan to provide their coverage. In turn, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services pay a set amount each month per member per month to the plan to provide that care for people. The plan then takes on the responsibility of setting up a provider network, and the plan will then enter into arrangements to pay for the care that the enrollee receives.
0: Again, it adds up to $400 billion a year, the payments for Medicare Advantage. What are some of the issues here that you think OIG is concerned with and that are driving the strategic plan for auditing it and watching it?
4: Sure. So there are a couple trends we have observed in this area and that we have done work on. One of them has to do with prior authorization and denials of prior authorizations. And what that amounts to is an enrollee goes to the provider, and the provider has to get prior authorization or approval from the plan to provide that service. And we found in our report that in 13% of those cases, Plans denied the service that actually met the Medicare coverage rules. The work received some intention, including there was a congressional hearing, legislation was introduced, and CMS is looking at regulatory action. We've also, by the way, seen the same issues in Medicaid managed care. In our work we did on that, we saw that 12 plans had a denial rate of over 25%.
0: That's kind of the opposite, then, of the fraudulent type of activity where people try to get paid for what they did not do, which is another branch of, you know, auditing. This is where they would get paid back if they went ahead and authorized this. So then the angle, then, is the denial of legitimately earned care on the part of the patient here.
4: Uh, Yes, another way to put that is that it's a planned way to control costs. But in these cases, the enrollees are not receiving services that they potentially need.
0: Got it. So this would be under like a fixed cost system that they're getting reimbursed for. They're trying to give as little service as they can get away with in some of those cases.
4: That could be. Our work did show that, you know, that 13 percent of cases, the plans denied services that should have been covered by Medicare.
0: All right. So in your strategic plan, then, what are the major elements that you're going to be looking at over the next few years and how you're going to go about it?
4: Our strategic plan is we have three main goals. One is to promote access to care which has to do with things I just talked about. Beneficiaries are enrolled in these programs. They have the right to receive care. They have the right to be able to find a doctor and to be able to get that care. The second is to provide comprehensive financial oversight. There's an incredible amount of money going to the Medicare Advantage program, over $400 billion. And we wanna make sure the taxpayers receive value for that and then enrollees receive the care they need. One major part of the financial oversight has to do with how plans are paid, a system called risk adjustment. And that just means plans receive a higher amount to cover sicker beneficiaries. That was instituted in order to avoid cherry picking and for plans to be able to cover these people. However, what we've seen is there has been some inaccuracies in that. We've conducted 28 audits of plans and we have identified $377 million in overpayments. That is that the plans could not substantiate that the enrollee did have that condition that they reported for payment. One focus of these audits is what we call high-risk diagnoses, and those are some things that we found to be especially prone for error. And just honing in on those across the audits, we found an error rate of 69%. Yikes. That is, there are certain problems that, you know, plans need to be looking for and should be addressed. Another similar component in risk adjustment that we've done work on is related to what we call health risk assessments and chart review. And what that means in a health risk assessment, a plan will send a person into an enrollee's home or maybe do it over the phone and assess what conditions that person has. Chart review in a similar vein is going back and looking through the medical record to find diagnoses that were never submitted on claim for payment. But the OIG work has shown that there are $9.2 billion in payments that were solely related to diagnoses reported on health risk assessments or chart reviews. And what that means is there were no other services submitted for the year for that enrollee, which raises some questions. If the diagnosis is indeed accurate, then what is the plan doing to provide services for these beneficiaries?
0: Sure, yeah. If they had a horrible diagnosis and they only went in for one appointment, you got to wonder, well, what happened for the, with the rest of the patient or was that diagnosis correct? We're speaking with Carolyn Capesty. She is Senior Advisor for Managed Care in the Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General's Office of Audit Services. And to execute this audit plan over the next few years, how are you reorganizing? Are you putting more auditors on it? I mean, there's a PowerPoint on it, but there's more to it than a PowerPoint.
4: Sure. We are having coordinated meetings. We're trying to use all of our resources to address this, and we've made it a priority outcome. I will say it is a challenge. As you know, OIG's budget is we only get two cents to oversee every hundred dollars that are spent on HHS programs.
0: Right. So the plan then is maybe just to focus the staff. Here's where we want you to be looking.
4: We're still working through that, but IG Groom has designated this as a priority for us to focus our resources on.
0: I imagine there's a lot of congressional interest in this also.
4: Yes, there has been more congressional interest as of late. I believe just due to the sheer increase in enrollment, managed care has been a popular topic on the Hill. And
0: when you look at the managed care industry, maybe briefly characterize that for us. I mean, there's some large national health care plans that offer Medicare Advantage, but there's a lot of smaller ones. And is it possible to know where most of the issues occur, whether they're large or small, or does that really play a role here? Is that really a factor?
4: That's an interesting question. and I think more research would be needed to kind of identify the answers to that question. But again, we've done a lot of work in this area. Another one of our goals is to promote data accuracy and data-driven decisions. And we have found that in some cases, the data simply is not available. The data is incomplete or not even set up for reporting, and that kind of makes it challenging.
0: But still, it must be daunting thinking about the volumes of dollars that you're looking at here. You mentioned in one case there were 9.2 billion payment transactions, and it must be daunting to have these numbers of transactions and dollars to get at the heart of what's happening at the individual level.
4: It is daunting, but we have a wonderful, experienced staff of auditors, evaluators, and investigators and counselors to really look at what's going on. One interesting thing that our investigators have investigated and discovered is oftentimes there will be fraud schemes to start off in the fee-for-service program, and they later move into the Medicare Advantage program. Once the issue is addressed in one program, it moves to another. There was a nationwide orthotic brace scam, and we saw claims drop 9% for those. But after they stopped submitting them in fee-for-service, it enc- the same brace submission of the claim for payment for that increased by 22%. That's another thing to keep in mind is just all the areas where there can be room for fraud, waste and abuse.
0: Right. Yes. So CMS HHS has lots of doors and the uh, bad guys will keep trying a door till they can find a way in after you've locked up the last one.
4: There are always emerging areas. And that's part of our strategic plan, too, is that As the program evolves and grows, our oversight has to evolve and grow and become more sophisticated. We take that very seriously to try to keep up and try to identify where the next area of risk will be.
1: Carolyn Capesti is Senior Advisor for Managed Care and the Health and Human Services Inspector General's Office of Audit Services. We'll post this interview along with a link to the strategic plan at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Here the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network. Contractors prepare for shutdown, or at least an austere October. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. With continuing resolution discussions, if you can even call them that, seeming to go nowhere, the chances of a government shutdown rise. Contractors and federal employees will feel it first. Our next guest has developed a contractor checklist for dealing with them. David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, laid out the checklist for Federal Drive host Tom Temen.
5: These issues have been around, really, ever since the the debt limit deal was cut back at the end of May and signed by the president on June 3rd. Uh, because one House, uh, one one part of the Congress, the House of Representatives, uh, began to walk away from that deal almost from the beginning. So we don't have, uh, we don't appear to have agreement across the Congress and, and with the White House on what the funding level would be. But we know two things for sure. We know that on midnight, September 30th, fiscal year 23 will come to an end. And we know that if something hasn't been passed by Congress and signed by the president, that our fiscal year 24 will start with a shutdown. Everything else, we're going to have to monitor and watch between now and then. So the real question is, what is the impact of that? There's been a lot of media coverage, including you've had a number of things on your show covering Congress and covering the impact, you know, on military and civilian personnel. But there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about the impact on contracts and contractors. So I'm happy to be with you this morning to cover that.
0: Well, the impact on contractors is probably mixed because some of them say you're supporting the operations of FAA towers, then you're going to keep working. But if you're developing the next generation of digital services, that could come to a halt.
5: It's different for contractors, though, because every contract that's in place right now is funded with prior year or fiscal year twenty three appropriations. So no current contract relies upon next year's appropriations. Obviously, they haven't been appropriated yet. The funds haven't been available yet. So for contractors, they're, most of them are funded and your requirement is to actually keep on working independent of the accepted status of your customer or the program that you're supporting with a number of caveats. But it's really important to stress that key point. You have a contract, There's no clause in that contract that says if the government shuts down, you stop working. You actually have to keep working because that's what your contract calls for. So there are caveats, though. What if a contractor can't get in touch with a government person that they need to have to approve something, to accept a deliverable, to move on to the next step? What if they can't access a facility? What if they can't access the data that they need for whatever reason? Or what if the money runs out? Well, the money won't run out on day one, but if the shutdown is long enough, the current funding could run out or the government could decide to issue a stop work order. All of those are reasons why you would stop or be affected, but none of them are presumed on minute one of day one of the shutdown.
0: But if the shutdown does continue at some point, unless there's an emergency declaration, like keeping the airports going or something, then the money would run out, as you say, and that would stop a contract because a contract to be a contract has to have consideration and not just the order to keep working.
5: And it's interesting. You read, so you know, one of the first things that we recommend to our member companies is read the guidance that agencies are putting out. And we have, for our members on our website, we have a shutdown resource center that that has all of the guidance documents that have been issued by all the agencies that we can find. Um, Only a handful have been updated for fiscal year 23. Most of the rest of them are one year, two year, even in some cases three or four years old. Um, But the new ones that are issued will make a key point of saying that, you know, if your contract supports an accepted activity that is something that has to keep going even under a shutdown even though the workers aren't getting paid um you may be uh, offered and asked to extend your contract even if there's no money you know it's not always clear what options a company has in terms of accepting you know i'm going to work without pay for an undetermined period of time But most of our members are so committed to the mission that, of course, they're going to continue supporting that mission going forward. We learned a lot, by the way, Tom, from that partial government shutdown back, you remember, in Christmas of 2018 that extended for 35 days. And one of the things we learned is you better prepare for a longer time than you might have thought at the front end.
3: Yes,
0: because I think the uh, political positions are even more intractable now than they were then, if that's possible.
5: If you look back at that shutdown, and by the way, that's the last one that was even partial to go back to a full government shutdown. You have to go back 10 years to 2013, where we had a 17-day shutdown to start October 1st of uh, fiscal year 14. But what you learned in that process is that not all the people asked the right questions ahead of time in that shutdown in 2018-2019, we ended up coming out right where we would have been had the legislation in place been passed. And that doesn't look to be the case this time.
0: We're speaking with David Berto, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. So that being the case, and we can anticipate perhaps a longer shutdown, you have published kind of a checklist for member companies of what to do in anticipation of this and enduring it when it happens. What are some of the key points on that checklist?
5: Well, there's two areas, Tom, that you have to, the companies have to cover. And keep in mind, we always remind our member companies that PSC doesn't give legal advice or accounting advice. These are just uh, our what, what we see and, and talk about with them. But First are the external things. What kind of discussions do you have with your programs and your contracting officers? You, know, you want to know before you get to the shutdown, will you be able to contact your contracting officer during a shutdown? Is the administrative contracting officer going to be uh, working without pay or on leave without pay? Um, if that person's unavailable, who can you contact? How can you reach them? You know, who will accept delivery of, of, of whatever your goods and services are that you're putting out there? How can you reach those people? Who will approve invoices for payment? And how can you reach them? And if that person is not available, then who, you know? And, And we even have a situation that came up back in the last shutdown where it lasted so long that the next option on that contract had to be exercised. Well, who's going to be there to approve the exercise of the option? How can you reach those? So those are important questions that you would ask in addition to questions like, Will the facilities be open? Will I have access to the data, the network, the computer systems, et cetera, right? So how can you ensure that your employees will have access to that? Who do you contact if access did not? Uh, And what remote work arrangements might be available? That's something that's different this time than all the previous shutdowns because, you know, three and a half years of COVID, we've got a lot of different work habits now than we've ever had before. And how do you accommodate those in your process? So those are some of the kinds of questions you would ask the government before you get to the end of the fiscal year.
0: But non-accepted federal employees would not be able to work legally, even if they have telework capabilities. Remember, the Clinton administration had baskets to collect the blackberries as people filed out of the office. So even if they're home well, and their PCs are there on the dining room table or wherever, they're proscribed from working. That's
5: correct. And, of course, you know, the, within an agency or within a component of an agency – the procuring contracting officer may be accepted, but the administrative, that is the person who makes the award decisions, but the administrative contracting officer may in fact be furloughed or, or laid off. Uh, plus, you mentioned the Blackberries. There's one other twist that I don't know how this is going to play out this time. And, and we're really asking these questions of the, of the government as well as the, of our member companies. We have a lot of government employees now who use their own device. They're no longer using a government device to do this, right? And so there's big questions. The guidance so far is kind is of, kind of, uh, silent on that point then there's a second set of questions which is what kind of what do you do inside your company sort of independent of the government right you know you certainly need to know all the critical dates associated with your current contracts you know what are the deliveries uh, when are they uh, when are they there what's your flexibility you know what it'll have what impact it might have on non- government work sites you may be in a lease facility that you know the government has a big chunk of the building and, you know, what are your cash flow requirements? How will you meet them if invoice payments are delayed, right? You know, uh, and regarding your employees, you know, you need to know where they are, how you are going to reach them? It'll be Sunday morning when the shutdown occurs, uh, you know, uh, they may be on travel, sure. they may be on leave, you know, how do you, how do you prepare to furlough those employees? And there's issues of un- that came up last time of eligibility for unemployment compensation. There's the workforce, uh, uh um, Notifications required under the WARN, the Warren Act, and other labor law requirements at the state level, a lot of things that companies have to consider internally. So we provide a checklist. And, uh, you know, once we have uh, released that checklist publicly, we'll be glad to provide it to you, and you can post it on your website as well.
0: And probably not too many of your members could find alternate work, say, being scabs for General Motors or the Screen Actors Guild. (laughs) (laughs) So that means they're going to stay home (laughs) from work if they happen to be in the right areas of the country. Uh, But I wanted to ask about the idea of delivery, because you know if you're a product deliverer, then there's nobody at the receiving dock to take that new copier center that's on a pallet you know and shrink wrapped. But services contractors, the deliverable is either the presence of the people doing work, programming and whatever, or the delivery is something that you deliver over the network. And so there's, you know, how do you deal with this concept of deliverable in in the services
5: context? That's a great question. you know, the, the very nature of services is that deliverables cover a very wide array of possible things, including just hours worked as opposed in addition to, you know, maintenance done and facilities repaired and, you know, uh, uh, software delivered and, and data analyzed and the results of that analysis delivered. So these are all things that you really need, that companies really need to be talking about with their program offices and their contracting officers today. The one thing that we know, Tom, is that the government's guidance itself tends to focus on internal government functions, not on contracts and contractors. For instance, one agency we looked at, 14 pages of guidance is about a half page devoted to contractors. and and contracts. And so a lot of the questions remain unanswered. This is why it's so critical for government contractors, not just PSC member companies, but any government contractor to be asking these questions and having these dialogues and conversations, because the guidance is not coming down from the top. It'll have to be figured out at the program and contracting officer level.
0: All right. So everyone's got to be a Boy Scout and be prepared. That's a good
5: way to think about it. You know, we do this every now and then, so you'd think we'd remember, but 10 years is a long time since the last government-wide shutdown. And I don't think a lot of people are in the same jobs that they were in at that point. And so they'll say, well, I remember what we did before. Let's do that again. Plus, as we mentioned before, a lot has changed in 10 years.
1: David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This September marks one decade since the mass shooting at the Washington Navy Yard. The tragedy ultimately became a catalyst in changing how the government manages potential security risks from its employees and contractors. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. Justin, how are we today?
6: Hey, good, Eric. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well as well. So there have been remembrances and memorials over this past week as we hit the 10-year anniversary of the shooting. Remind us what happened on that day and how it may have led to some change.
6: Sure. So on September 16th, 2013, Navy IT contractor Aaron Alexis shot and killed 12 civilian and contractor employees at Naval Sea Systems Command headquarters at the Washington Navy Yard. He also wounded four others before he was killed by law enforcement. And this was obviously a a, a major and shocking tragedy, you know, for Washington, D.C. and for the Navy and for the federal government writ large. And, you you know, it led to a lot of reviews uh, of what exactly happened here. Alexis was a former Navy reservist who held a secret security clearance and he had access to NAVSEA headquarters through his job as a Navy IT contractor. And ultimately, a Pentagon review found that this incident could have been prevented if the Navy and Alexis's employer at the time had evaluated and reported previous arrests involving firearms, as well as some other erratic and alarming behavior in the years and months leading up to the shooting. Uh, Terrence McGowan is a security professional for the Navy. He narrowly escaped the shooting and actually shared his harrowing experience, really, from that day during a a webinar last week hosted by the Defense Department. And McGowan pointed to how there have been a lot of changes made in the personnel security field since that day.
7: Now we have continuous evaluation. We have continuous vetting. We have automatic checks. We're checking your interaction with law enforcement and your credit on a daily basis. All of this is because of the Aaron Alexis situation where there were red flags throughout his career in the Navy and as a contractor, and no one took up those opportunities.
6: And again, that's Terrence McGowan, a Navy security specialist who is sharing his experiences and thoughts on the the Navy yard shooting from 10 years ago.
1: And how did this incident spur on the advent of continuous vetting? And now that's a big term that pretty much everybody knows.
6: Yeah, that's right. McGowan pointed at that in his comments. You know, continuous vetting is really the system of automated records checks like uh, you know checking your your credit history or your potential criminal history on on a really a continuous basis a daily and weekly basis this system seems like it's been around for a while it's really only been around for a few years for security clearance holders and it really came out of out of this Aaron Alexis shooting because the incident really highlighted this gap in DoD's security clearance process where once an individual has gone through an, an initial background investigation, and received a security clearance in the past, that person would not have been investigated again for at least another five years. And so really, the system was reliant on either the person self-reporting a potential issue to a security officer or having someone else report an issue to a security office in those in intervening years between investigations. And as I point, as we, we talked about earlier, there were multiple instances where Alexis was either arrested or had run ins with law enforcement, uh, where, you know, a system like that could have potentially tipped off investigators to something going on in his background. And so what happened in is this review that the Pentagon did of the Aaron Alexis situation recommended that DOD move to continuous evaluation, now called continuous vetting on an enterprise level. It was kind of an idea at the time. And, and, and what happened was over the last, five or so years, nearly all 4 million DOD clearance holders are now enrolled in continuous evaluation. And so the Aaron Alexis case and the investigation that happened afterward was one of the big things that really pushed that along. I spoke with Charlie Sowell. He's a former uh, D- director of national intelligence advisor. He covered, watches these security clearance issues closely. And he talked about how this this whole incident was really a wake-up call that helped spur things along like continuous evaluation.
7: Continuous vetting was an idea back in the days of Alexis. There were certainly some DOD systems that were in place that were performing continuous evaluation, continuous vetting. But really today, how many people that have clearances who are enrolled in continuous vetting today, it's a game-changer. So when you look at the ability of the government to identify problems before they snowball a whole different level, I think that's promising as well.
6: And again, that's
1: Charlie Sowell, a former director of National Intelligence Advisor. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday about the 10th anniversary of the Navy Yard shooting. So, Justin, what other recommendations from the review have come to fruition? This can't be the only security idea that was born from this incident.
6: Yeah, one of the other big ones was the creation of a DOD Insider Threat Management Analysis Center. It's called the DITMAC. And this center was one of the recommendations that came from the Pentagon's big review of the Navy Yard shooting in the aftermath. And really what, what it's intended to be and what, what it is now is this central area where a lot of insider threat incidents are reported and then analyzed for potential trends, potential, you know, issues that might need to be taken on further action. Because in the Aaron Alexis case, there were multiple incidents where either the Navy knew about something or his employer knew about something And no one seemed to be able to put together the pieces that there might have been a larger issue at play here with Aaron Alexis in in the year and basically over the course of his adult life with, you know, multiple firearms related issues and arrests with, you know, potentially hearing voices and and, and potential psychological issues. And so this this center, this DITMAC, is really intended to be the central point where Insider Threat information is reported and analyzed and then, you know, analysts there can can kind of take that information into account and recommend, you know, follow up actions accordingly. So that's that's another thing that was created after the Navy Yard
1: shooting. Even with all of those new protocols, insider threats are still at the top of the list when you talk to security personnel about their biggest fears. And so what are some of those bigger challenges that remain when it comes to insider threats?
6: Yeah, there, there's a few. Uh, w- one is that, you know, this new center uh, that that I just mentioned uh, it, it relies on reporting really from the lower level, you know, DOD organizations and military services. Uh, and, and what's been found is that a lot of those those services and, and DOD organizations are not reporting as often as they need to up to the center. There is a redacted September 2022 DOD Inspector General report that found that There was not consistent reporting to the DITMAC. The Navy, for instance, did not report 26 incidents to the center over about a nine-month period that involved things like murder, rape, kidnapping, aggravated assault, robbery, and soliciting sexual conduct with a minor. That's according to the IG report. And in some cases, it took organizations as long as two years to report information to the center. So there's a lag there as well. Another big issue is that it's cha- it's a challenge to convince employees to report potentially concerning behavior uh, of their colleagues to a security office. Uh, you know, it feels like you're telling on someone, of course. And and it's Insider Threat Awareness Month. Every September is Insider Threat Awareness Month. It's a government-sponsored event where these organizations that are in charge of insider threat really the message is you know if you see something, say something. This year's theme is bystander engagement, and so they're really still banging the drum on getting folks to report potentially concerning behavior. Finally, technology continues to be a challenge. We talked about continuous vetting and how that's really taken hold. But the system itself is still kind of in in the early stages. There's only a limited amount of information that it can pull upon. And the IT system behind the whole process, the the next-generation background investigation system – is still being developed. And the GAO recently reported on challenges associated with that system, cost and schedule overruns. So, you know, I I talked to, to Charlie Sowell about that as well. Here's what he had to say.
7: I wonder if some of the revolutionary technology changes that you need to better aggregate and analyze relevant information and serve up information to adjudicators and investigators I wonder if we're going to be able to implement any of that anytime soon. And that's a big hindrance to the process.
6: And again, that's Charlie Sowell. He's former advisor to the director of national intelligence.
1: Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you so much for all of your coverage on this. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. All righty. And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.